this month, we have discussed five of the major conversations that are taking place in our culture right now. And today, we come to the most sensitive and I'm sure also the most controversial of all of those conversations, and that is sexual identity. You know, the most important part of any conversation is listening to what the other person or persons are saying. This does three things at least. Number one, it shows that we really want to understand that other person. Number two, it also shows that we see the value and the dignity of that other human being, that we're willing to listen carefully to what they say. And then thirdly, it's only accurately listening that makes it possible to accurately respond. If you don't have good listening in a conversation, then what you usually end up with is a big shouting match where it just drives people apart. So I want to begin this morning by asking our church family to listen to a woman named Vicki Beeching, who is a woman who grew up in church. She went on to become a really well-known Christian artist, songwriter, singer. I wouldn't be surprised some of the worship songs we have sung were written by Vicki. Uh, she was mainly well-known in England, but also pretty well-known here in the United States. And so I want, her, I want us to listen closely to her story this morning for about five minutes, because Vicki has become a, a major voice for the gay community, for our gay family members, for friends, for gay neighbors. And, and after Vicki has shared, as she introduces our conversation this morning, then I'm going to come back and... We're going to spend a few moments responding to what Vicki has to say. So let's listen closely now. You've either made me someone that can follow you or someone that can be gay. But how could you have made me both and what am I supposed to do with it? The church is a really, really difficult place to grow up as a teen if you know you're gay. I'm haunted by many stories of LGBT youth who are Christians who've shared their stories with me. Um, stories of, of terror, of fear, of a secret life lived behind closed doors. Many of them carry this secret long into their adulthood. Some of them never actually reconcile themselves with it. There's one particular story that keeps me awake at night, most nights in fact, about a young girl who grew up looking like the poster child of Christianity, the perfect Christian kid, except she knew from the age of 13 that she was gay and she didn't manage to reconcile herself with it until she was 30. That story keeps me awake at night, predominantly because it's my story. I remember one night when I was 13, kneeling down on my bedroom carpet and soaking the carpet with my tears, just sobbing, wanting God to take my life away, saying to God, this is too hard, this burden is too much, you've either made me someone that can follow you or someone that can be gay, but how could you have made me both and what am I supposed to do with it? That was a night where I genuinely, uh, all I could see was darkness and I desperately wanted my life to be over. I've always been uh, really keen on keeping a diary and it's amazing and um, very sad for me as well to look back at some of these old diaries that I kept when I was um, in my early teens. They just tell stories of the deep struggle and tension that was going on in me um, throughout all of those years. The excitement about the future, the excitement about my music taking off, people singing my songs, 
uh, my first publishing deal when I was 17, contributing to my first um, gold record in my early 20s, but at the same time having this dark secret that I couldn't tell anyone about, and I didn't tell anyone about. These books tell the story of uh, confessing to a Catholic priest, talking to him about my sexuality for the first time behind closed doors, desperately hoping that when he um, gave me the absolution that I would suddenly be changed, and I wasn't. These journals um, have all my scribblings about the time when um, I went for um, deliverance ministry, as we would call it in the church, to try and get kind of set free spiritually from being gay and how embarrassed I was to, to have to go for that and how humiliated I was that it didn't work. I reached a real breaking point in um, 2008. I was 28 and I was living in California at the time and basing my touring out of there. And 2008 was um, the time when Proposition 8 was uh, setting everybody uh, at war. The megachurches, the big evangelical megachurches of California had risen up in unity to stand against same-sex marriage and somehow, um, unbeknown to me, I found myself dragged into it. Lots of the people that would book me to come and sing and play suddenly would have these moments in the service where they would rally their congregation, uh, prepping them ready for the vote. And very unwillingly, I found myself almost becoming part of the soundtrack to standing against same-sex marriage in California. I found myself standing there singing and playing, feeling completely torn in two, literally fractured inside, feeling like I had to choose between my faith, the ministry, the career, the community I was in, and who I was inside. And it began to take such a toll on me, I began to feel incredibly ill. I ended up going to a doctor in San Diego and saying to him, I need you to run tests on me. I don't think everything's okay. I wasn't prepared for the answer that I got back when we'd finished all the tests. The doctor set me down and said, I actually have some really bad news for you. He said, you've, you've contracted a really nasty autoimmune condition. You've uh, pushed your body so much that um, this is actually really, really serious. And he said to my great surprise that the treatment I needed was chemotherapy. The autoimmune condition I had uh, is related to quite nebulous causes. There aren't any known physical causes, but having talked with a number of specialists, the number one thing they keep coming back to saying is, I bet you can name a really, really traumatic, stressful issue that's going on inside you or that you've been through. And they just said, I bet something comes to mind, doesn't it? And I said, yes, it does. And they said, well, that's most likely to be the reason why your body's crying out for help. I decided I didn't want to have chemotherapy in America because I was far from home and felt like that conservative Bible Belt culture was actually a major part of the contributing factors of why I was ill. So I decided to come back to the UK and I started the treatment. I really hope that my story somehow and all the countless other stories of the LGBT Christians who are speaking out at the moment can um, really um, unify into this one cry that says to young people, you don't have to choose between your faith and your sexuality, you're not alone. Things will get better, and God loves you exactly the way you are. Now, there are four things that I want to share in responding to Vicki's story this morning, and I think they're really important for us to hear. Uh, Number one, to hear the deep struggle that Vicki went through for so many years, struggling with her same-sex attraction, helps us understand that the gay or the same-sex issue is not just an issue. 
it's about people. It's about human beings. And too often, churches and Christians have lost sight of this and have come across to gay people as merely harsh, condemning, and basically showing disgust. And I believe that in many places, the church and Christians owe the gay community a deep apology for not having the love of Jesus Christ, who always listens to people and who always affirms the dignity of every human being. The second thing is listening to Vicky makes it really clear to us that Vicky did not choose her same-sex attraction. Rather, she discovered it. When she was 13 years old, you heard her say that she soaked the carpet in her room with her tears. Growing up in a Christian home, learning the Bible stories, hearing about God, knowing the plan of salvation. But she found when she was 13, a young adolescent, her attractions were different. And she prayed, God, change me. She wrote in her journal, God, change me. She went forward for prayer. She said it didn't work, didn't change her orientation. And she's typical of almost all people that have a same-sex attraction, or for that matter, a bisexual attraction, or for that matter, a transgender kind of attraction where their gender that the gender they identify with their mind does not fit the biological sexuality of their anatomy. The point I'm trying to make is this. First of all, I believe we need to understand that our gay family members, our gay friends, and our neighbors did not choose those attractions. They discovered them inside themselves, usually in childhood or early adolescence. Now, where did those desires, where did those attractions come from? Well, that's a huge issue, isn't it? Uh, some are saying, it's in you know, a more scientific way, that it comes out of our genetics. Some are saying, well, no, it's pretty much uh, the environment and things that happen in, in the environment. So it's nature or nurture. Uh, I'll say a little bit more about that in just a few minutes. But I'm not talking here about the origin. I'm just saying... The desire showed up. It was there. The third thing is, it's easy to see how Vicky and tens of thousands of others, after years of not being able to free themselves from their same-sex desires, and after years of having to live in secret shame, torn apart on the inside, finally pressing themselves to come to the decision, as Vicky eventually did, and she uses the word reconcile, to reconcile her sexual attraction by coming to believe that this is the way God created me, to accept this as their sexual identity and to come out boldly from their secret shame and demand equal rights with every other human being. I think we can see how that, how that could happen. They are simply acting upon the human value which says this, that no human being should be forced to live a secret life alienated from who they really are. And you know what? That happens to be something that we Christians also deeply believe as well. We believe that God's desire for every human being is that they be whole and complete, not fractured and split apart on, their ins- on the inside from the outside. We believe that value. Now, 
when I first listened to Vicki's story, and it's been at least a year ago, I'll tell you what, I, and especially when she made that statement, she was 13 in her room and she soaked her carpet. I want to tell you something. I, uh, that deeply moved me. I, I, found, I had a great compassion toward her um, as a junior high girl. And I believe if we have the heart of Jesus, that we're going to be entering into the sorrows and the struggles of people like Vicki. And she had to live all those years in her shame. She was never able to tell anybody her secret. And we can, only, and we can totally understand her longing to reconcile who she was on the inside with her identity on the outside, to be that whole and complete person, to not keep on hiding who she was. Now, here's where we come to our, our fourth point this morning. And we're going to spend time on our fourth point. I want to use Vicki's own word that she used several times in that, in that video. She used the word reconcile several times. She referred to that as her deepest longing, her deepest need. Now, what does that word reconcile mean? It means to unite what is split or torn apart by conflicting opinions or desires. Now, usually, you, we use the word reconcile in reference to two people who are in a fight or in a big disagreement, just differing opinions. And you know, that kind of reconciliation is really hard. To bring disagreeing people together, that's really hard. But the kind of reconciliation that Vicki refers to is even harder because that's when you have conflicting opinions inside of yourself, one part of you doesn't agree with the other part. One part of you might even hate the other part of you. And so you're torn apart from yourself. Then, the word reconcile means putting all the parts of who you are into harmony inside of one person so that you can be your true self. And it is at this point that all of us, like I said a moment ago, whether we are heterosexual or homosexual, the entire LGBTQ community, all of us have one thing that we need in common, and that is to be reconciled with who we are on the inside and the outside, to become the person God created us to be. Now, reconcile, though, is not only Vicky's word. It is also the one word that God chose in his word to describe why Jesus came into the world. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19 says this, God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ. So what we have here this morning to look at is we have two ways of reconciliation, bringing our torn selves into wholeness. We have two ways to look at here today. We have Vicki's way of reconciliation, and we have Jesus' way of reconciliation. Let's take a look at Vicki's first. Vicki's way of reconciliation is based upon the deeply embedded power of her same-sex attraction that she discovered early on in her life, and so deeply embedded inside of her, so surging, so strong, that it just had to be her sexual identity. How could it be otherwise? That's how she felt. 
this is who God made me to be. I was born gay. And I'm going to take the courage now to be who I am. I'm going to step out and be the person God made me to be. And then Vicki closed her story by saying something that was directed especially to young people. She said this, you don't have to choose between your sexuality and your faith in Christ. God loves you exactly the way you are. Now, we're going to come back and talk about that statement in just a second. But let me make this point. That it, what, what she is saying comes out as such a liberating and persuasive message that it has carried our culture all the way to the Supreme Court and to the, to the very redefinition of marriage. So strong and such a persuasive argument. And I'm not questioning the sincerity. I am not questioning one bit the sincerity of Vicki and tens of thousands of others. I'm not questioning their sincerity. What I would question, however, is the basis upon which and the path through which they are finding their reconciliation. So let's take a look at the way Jesus brings reconciliation to our torn selves. First of all, Jesus teaches us something very, very important about our desires and our attractions that we find within ourselves. In Mark chapter 7, he has a fairly long discussion about this. Verses 14 to 23, let me give you the context before we read through it. Uh, The disciples had just uh, eaten some food without observing the ritual hand washing that the religious leaders of that day considered among the most important tenets of their faith, (laughs) okay? Never eat food, you have to wash your hands and uh, they were, I guess you would say, sort of, it was a religious obsessive compulsive disorder or something. Uh, You know, so anyhow, the disciples, Jesus was setting people free from that kind of external crazy religiosity that we get caught up in sometimes, you know, uh, that means really nothing. And so, Jesus was going to say something to them like this. That, you know, he says, I'm much more concerned. I, okay, I'm all for washing your hands before you eat. I think Jesus would agree. But there's something far more dangerous and deadly for people here than unclean hands. Okay, this is what he says in verse 14. Then Jesus called the crowd to come and hear. All of you listen, he said, and try to understand. It, it's not what goes into your body that defiles you. Now, I mean, what goes into your body can make you sick. If you eat lunch today and eat about a dozen sliders at White Castle, (laughs) you know, I'll pity you for the rest of the day, okay? (laughs) So what goes into your body can make you sick. But Jesus says it won't defile you. So what does that word defile mean? He says, well, you are defiled by what comes out of your heart. The word defile is simply the word for getting dirty, getting stained, like our clothes. They get dirty, they get stained, they need to be washed. So the word defiled means unclean. And Jesus is saying here that our hearts are unclean. And what comes out of our hearts is unclean. Okay, so what is it that he identifies as coming out of our hearts that are those things that are unclean? Well, let's take a look. 
because the disciples ask him the same question. Verse 17, then Jesus went into a house to get away from the crowd, and his disciples asked him what he meant by the parable he had just used. Don't you understand either, he asked? Can't you see that the food you put into your body cannot defile you? Food doesn't go into your heart. It only passes through the stomach and then goes into the sewer. You know, if we could ever accuse Jesus of giving too much information, (laughs) that would be the text, okay? He states it bluntly, all right? (laughs) But he said this, this is sort of an aside, he said this, by saying this, he declared that every kind of food is acceptable in God's sight. So those of you that eat some really strange things, as long as you do it in moderation, Jesus has said, you know, anything that's cooked on the food channel, it's all right, go for it. I'm not gonna join you in some of that stuff though. Anyway, then he adds this, and here's where he gets down to it. He says, it is what comes from inside you that defiles you. For from within, out of a person's heart, out of the core of our being, out of our very nature, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, wickedness, deceit, lustful desires, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. And he could have extended that list. And all these vile things come from within. Those are the things that defile you. Okay, how did did our hearts get into such an unclean condition? How did our desires, the desires that are inside of our hearts become so tainted and stained? Well, we know the story from the scripture. And this is certainly what Jesus is alluding to. When God created Adam and Eve, when he created the seed of humanity in our parents, he put all kinds of pure passions, his very own passions and desires, he put them inside of human beings. He gave us five senses, and and in Adam and Eve, those five senses were so alive. Alive with a desire for pleasure and beauty and and discovery and enjoying the creation and enjoying each other and, and one of the most powerful, perhaps the most powerful of all those attractions he placed inside was the sexual attraction. But then the fall took place. What happened at the fall? Well, in effect, human beings issued God a divorce and say, God, uh, we can run the show. We can build our own lives. We don't need you any longer. So God exited the human heart. His influence, his his influence pulled out out, out of the human heart, the place where our desires were connected to him. And so our desires, our passions, all those things that were so beautiful and so God given came under human control, disconnected from God and including, including the pleasure we're talking about today, including, including our sexuality. The fall affected us at every level of our being, spiritually, intellectually, emotionally, relationally, physically. It affected us down to our DNA. Our God-given desires have been distorted, twisted. Our wires have been crossed. And so we come into this world born, oriented, with a heart away from God. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've all went after our own way, away from God's design. 
And that is why we cannot reconcile the conflicting, deep, surging desires and attractions we find within ourselves by basing our identity upon any one of them. It would seem like freeing our fallen attractions and those deep desires, it would seem like they would lead us to be our true self. Jesus says it's the very opposite. Reconciliation on that basis will lead us further away from our true self. It will fracture our lives more. That'll be the outcome. We'll be more lost as a result. So let me say it this way. Interpreting Adam and Eve after the fall and all of us since began to interpret ourselves and our world through the, through the distortion of our own attractions and desires. It's leading us the wrong direction. And I want to make note here also, though, you know, that when Jesus went through that list of our fallen characteristics and sins, when he went through that list, he didn't single out one as worse than any of the others, did he? And you know what? We mustn't do that either. We're all in the same boat here. Whether we are heterosexual or homosexual, we're all in the same boat. So what is Jesus' way of reconciliation? He came to reconcile us from our fallen orientations, our attractions, our misdirected desires, to restore us back to God, to re reconnect us back to that God and his, his attractions. Basically an attraction for him, a desire for him that it supersedes all the other fallen desires that try to lead us the wrong direction. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19, let me repeat it and add to what Paul says there. For God was in Christ reconciling the world. God was in Christ putting torn apart people back together again throughout the world, re reconciling them to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. And he has given us this wonderful message of reconciliation. It's a message of hope. Verse 21, how did he, how did he pull this off? For God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sin, so that we could be made right with God through Christ. Jesus took all our fallen, our twisted, broken desires, whatever they are, and all the sins we've ever committed by acting on those twisted desires. He took all of that upon himself, and he took it all to the cross, the whole weight of that, he took the blame for all the times we've ever crossed God's boundaries, mistaking a fallen desire for God's will. He, Jesus took the blame for all of that so that we could place our faith in him and be restored to a relationship with him that begins a process of renewing our attractions and renewing our desires in line with his own. So Jesus' way of reconciliation would simply, in a nutshell, be this. Discover your true self by basing your identity in a relationship with Jesus. Now, you may be asking, let me raise a few questions here. Uh, does God's word say specifically that same-sex attraction is on the list of fallen attractions? Does it say that? Yes, it does, and it says it more than once. One of the places where it makes this statement is in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, and let me read what the Apostle Paul says here. 
He says the law is for people who are sexually immoral or who practice homosexuality or are slave traders or liars, promise breakers, who do anything else that contradicts the wholesome teaching that comes from the glorious good news entrusted to me by our blessed God. Now, I want to make this point. You know, it's not a sin to have a fallen attraction. That's not the sin. If a person is born with... um, to use what we're talking about today, if a person is born and when they're at an adolescent, they discover, wow, I got my, my attraction is, is same sex. They discover that about themselves. Okay, having that same sex attraction is not a sin. The sin would be when I be, begin to build my own identity around it and begin to live out and act upon that fallen desire. That's where we begin to walk, that's where we begin to cross God's boundaries, one of God's boundaries. But that could be said of any other fallen desire as well. So sometimes there have been people, and I think maybe Vicky was one of them, who felt like, oh man, I'm not acceptable to God because look, look at this desire that's inside of me. God, I must not be, a, no, God loves, he loves us all in our brokenness. That's why Jesus came to be our reconciliation. He wants us to bring our brokenness to him. Uh, you know, some, now some may be here asking today, you know, Pastor Jim, you are putting an awful lot of weight on this Bible. You're putting an awful lot of weight on the Bible, which we call God's word. And we, we take our authority in these kinds of issues from God's word. And now, you may not be convinced that the scripture is all that authoritative. You might feel like, well, how do you know it's, you know, all that it's cracked up to be? How do you know that? Uh, well, we, I could take a long time to answer that question. <laughs> and I don't think any of you want to stay here you know, for another three hours, okay? Uh, there's some, there are some excellent answers to the validity of the scripture and what it claims to be. But you know what? The greatest of them is this. I, I put a lot of weight on this book because Jesus put a lot of weight on that book. He said, referring to the Old Testament scriptures, you know, the the better part of it, the first half of it, first three quarters of it, I guess you would say. He said one day that, uh, you know, heaven and earth will pass away. But the, my word, it'll never pass away. Uh, and then, can we trust Jesus? Was Jesus credible? Is he really who he said he was? Or was he an imposter, a fake, or something? No. I think the evidence stacks up that Jesus is exactly who he said he was, the Son of God, the Savior, the light of the world, the bread of life, the way, the truth, the life, Go on down the line. Jesus taught more about who he was than all the ethical things he taught. He didn't come to teach us a new ethic. Now, he included that in what he did, but Jesus, most of all, came to teach us who he was because that's where our reconciliation comes from. He's the Savior, sinless, who died for your sins and mine to set us free so we could find, really find our true selves. Now, you may be thinking this morning another question. Okay, Vicky's a Christian. From a young girl, she, she accepted Jesus when she was a little girl. She's worshipped him. She's written worship songs about him. She's prayed. She prayed. She kept a journal. She took her faith seriously. If she had a relationship with Jesus and was trusting him and praying so fervently that God would reorient her deep desire, and she said it didn't work, well, what's going on here? 
why hasn't Vicky under, you know, uh, experienced a sort of a, a transformation from her um, homosexual orientation toward a heterosexual orientation? Why hasn't that happened? Well, let me, let me answer that question by expanding the question a little bit. Why do all followers of Jesus still struggle every day with fallen desires, cravings, attractions that rise up in us all, all the time? Why is that? Uh, Paul answers that question in Galatians chapter 5. He says this, verse 16 and 17, he says, so, and he's speaking to Christians here who've received Christ. He says, so I say to Christians, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. Then you won't be doing what your sinful nature crave, craves. So, when we come to Christ, the cravings, those old desires, those old temptations, those old vulnerabilities, they don't suddenly disappear. Our old nature is still there, and our old nature is still craving. But something else has happened. Jesus Christ has entered into our lives. The Spirit of God has come to live in our lives. And so now he comes to bring a strength to us that can enable us to lay aside those other desires out of a deeper commitment and a deeper love. Now we have a deeper attraction than any of our attractions. Our attraction is to Jesus. We love him with all of our heart, soul, and being. And it's in that strength, the strength of a greater, deeper love and attraction that we can rise above all those other attractions that are trying to define who we are. Philippians 1.6, God makes a promise. And this is a process of change. This is what Paul said. I am certain that God who began the good work in you will continue his work, work of what? Work of transforming you until it is finally finished in the day when Jesus Christ comes. And then Jesus said this about those who would follow him in, in Luke chapter nine, verses 23 and 24. This is what he said. And he, remember, he was speaking to an audience of people with all different kinds of fallen desires. <laughs> all different kinds. He said this, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves. Deny what? Deny the old, the old desires, the old paths. And take up their cross daily and follow me. What does it mean to take up your cross? It means the cross is an instrument that leads to death. So what's, what he's saying here is that when you receive Christ, he wants to lead you into a new life that's centered in an identity in him. But those old cravings are still pounding away, trying to reassert their position. Jesus, our love for Christ and the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives, our lives gives us the ability to put to death, to nail to the cross in Christ's strength, all those old, those old desires. Now, it won't be easy. It can be tough. It can be hard. But it really boils down to what I said a moment ago, that receiving Christ and continuing to nurture that relationship with him creates in us a, the most profound attraction we could ever have, the attraction for him, loving the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. When we love God like that and walk with him day by day, then we have the power to deal with all these other struggles and not live them out. Uh, 
Now, this brings us then to a very important point. Uh, we need each other in overcoming the vulnerabilities of our brokenness. Vicki didn't find that in any of the churches she was a part of growing up. She didn't find any fellow Christian. She didn't find a pastor. She didn't find anybody. Her age, she didn't find an older mentor. She didn't find anybody in any of the churches she was a part of. And then all through her Christian travels as a Christian singer, she never found anybody that she could share the deep secret of her life with. So she grew up struggling with it. Um, but, the, but the scripture says this, share each other's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And what is the law of Christ? The law of Christ is the law of love. I give you, one, I give you a new commandment, that you should love one another as I have loved you. That's the new commandment. That's the law of Jesus. It's the law of love. And uh, so, uh, this brings me then to the next point. And I believe this is true. That we at Calvary Church are seeking to be the kind of church where any person, no matter what their struggle, no matter what their secret might be, can find a safe, accepting, caring place among people that will listen, people that will care, people that are going to receive them so that they can find the same salvation and healing and reconciliation that we have found in Jesus Christ. Jesus never singled out one struggle with fallen desires as worse than another struggle with fallen desires. He didn't do that. What he did, he came to, he came to open up his heart to every struggling human being, no matter who or what or where, what their background, no matter what. And so may, may God help us more than ever to be a church that will do the very same thing in this culture that more than ever needs that kind of caring, loving, receiving. You know, there's a new statement. It used to be back in, uh, you know, two or three, four or five decades ago. People believed in Jesus before they would belong to a church. They would maybe, you know, uh, receive Christ through the witness of somebody. And at work or a neighborhood or wherever it was, they would believe, or maybe they had just grown up in the faith, they moved to a new community. But anyhow, they would, when they got to the new community, they would go search out, they had their own faith already, so they would go search out a church to belong to. You know what, that's completely reversed right now. In our culture, people are so hungry for relationships and for people that care, for sincerity, authenticity, that's what people are hungry for. Uh, and uh, now, so today, people belong before they believe. So what that means is we have to have open hearts, receiving people who, who don't yet know Christ, who are still caught up in the struggles and all the things of their life. They may not look the way we want. They may not fit all the categories that you and I want because we've been in Christ for 50 years or something like that. <laughs> you know? But you know what? Jesus sees past all that stuff, doesn't he? He sees human beings that need reconciled. Not reconciled in, in those faulty kinds of ways that seem right, but they lead to death. But reconciled through him who died to set us all free. Um, so, is 
living out, is living out a gay lifestyle, crossing God's boundary. Yes, absolutely it is. God's word is extremely clear on that. It's not vague. It's very clear on that. Now, I know that uh, you might also be saying today, well, Pastor Jim, that's just your interpretation. And that's what's being said an awful lot in this whole issue, this whole uh, discussion, this conversation that's happening in our culture right now. And I'm, I'm very aware, for some of you that might be, I'm very aware of Matthew Vines. I'm very aware of Justin Lee and a whole host of other uh, gay theologians that are seeking to uh, reinterpret or to say that the church has missed its interpretations through historically on these texts. Well, I'll tell you what. Um, I just don't think it holds water, guys, <laughs> to be real honest with you. Now, because I've spent a lot of time searching these things out, uh, a lot of time. And uh, I think God's word's pretty clear. And so, um, so here's where I want to wrap it up here today. Then we're going to have communion. This is another important question. Uh, all of us in this room are fallen with particular struggles with certain fallen attractions. Jesus calls us to him. Many, if not most of you in this room, have come to Christ and found reconciliation. If you are here this morning and have not yet come to Christ, whatever your struggle might happen to be, you can come to him. He will totally receive you. And then he will enter into your life, your, your heart, your core, that place where we're unclean, and he'll begin his process of giving, becoming the new center around which we build our identity. And to begin to rebuild your life based upon that new center of identity. A, f a life filled with some new attractions. Mainly an attraction to him. So, I want to pray this morning, just before we come to communion, which celebrates the whole reconciliation of Jesus that he provided on the cross. Um, so would you pray with me right now? Heavenly Father, thank you for your word, your truth, your love. Thank you, Jesus, for coming into this world where we're all broken and messed up. You came to reconcile us so that we don't have to make all these faulty attempts to reconcile ourselves, which just lead us nowhere. But Lord, we come to you. We thank you that you met with your disciples that night before the cross, and you gave them such a great picture of what it was all about. We thank you, Father, Lord Jesus, that you, you took the bread, you, you gave the bread to your disciples saying, it's, it, this is my body, it's gonna be broken for you for the forgiveness of your sins, for your healing and restoration. Thank you for taking that cup and saying, this is the covenant, the new covenant in my blood that's gonna be shed. I'm gonna pour it out because I profoundly, deeply love you. I love every one of you. And I'm gonna die on your behalf, in your place, so that you can have a reconnection with God. So Father, we thank you this morning as we come to communion and may we receive this, Lord, with a spirit of gratitude and care and love, Lord, for a God that loves us so much as to become our reconciler and our savior. And uh, we give you praise for all these things we pray in Jesus' wonderful name, amen, amen, amen.